Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. A big new player with lots of money and sophistication has entered the game and is probably not going away. That's what Jim Bianco, our next guest, says. Wall Street never saw the Redditors coming. Jim Bianco is president of Bianco Research and Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Jim, just first of all, on today's action, are the Redditors sort of retreating just a little bit into their corners in preparation for something else big? Or are they just at now sort of having executed their plan for GameStop? Are they sort of just retreating in general? Oh, I think that they're retreating from the trade. Um, they won. The announcement was yesterday when we found out that the gigantic short in, the, in, in GameStop and some of these other stocks was covered by the hedge funds. The hedge funds took a big loss. They walked away. And now the short squeeze is ending and so that they're all exiting the trade right now. And they're exiting presumably at a big loss. Dave Portnoy texting or uh, sending out a tweet saying he lost $700,000 on the meme stocks here. This is, I mean, the retail investors are getting crushed here, aren't they? No, they're not getting crushed. There are some that are losing. Portnoy lost some money, but that's not a big loss for him. He'll be back, you know, probably with a bigger gain or loss by the end of the week if you follow him like uh, like I do closely. Um, a lot of the a lot of the buying on all the way up to the top, which we found out now was a short cover. It wasn't necessarily retail. Look, if the answer is there's 7.5 million people on Reddit, did some of those people lose with the market with this stock going down? Yes. So if you're asking is there perfection in the trade, um, no, there isn't. But if you said, here's a group of hedge funds, here's a group of retail traders, who did better? The retail traders by far did better in this episode. The masters of the universe got hurt a lot worse in this trade than the retail traders. Yeah, Jim, how do they not see this coming? I mean, some of them are definitely in there on those Reddit, uh, you know, subreddits. I was communicating with one, you know, very large hedge fund manager last week, and he actually said it's really shocking, a swarm of small investors overpowering any sense of value. This, these were his words. How do they not see this coming? I think the problem is the word collusion. Look, when the stock got over to 100% of the float, I think it's illegal, it's a short, it's a naked short, but even if it isn't illegal, uh, it is very poor uh, risk management by a lot of these hedge funds to have that big a short. Why did they have that big a short? Because they all looked at each other, and let me, let me not mince words, is Goldman Sachs going to stick it to us? Is another hedge fund going to stick it to us? Is J.P. Morgan going to stick it to us? No. None of them are going to stick it to us. So it's not imprudent to run that kind of risk. And then they said, who out there is going to figure this out and stick it to us? And we found out who. Because if you go on the Reddit boards, they talked exactly about this. Starting in October, they identified Melvin Capital as being the big short. And when the uh, when, when the uh, short uh, report came out by Citron Research two weeks ago, they literally said, this is, the, this is the event right now. Let's go. We've got them because they're at maximum squeeze potential. 
I think when Michael Lewis writes the book, he's going to call this, now we've got the greatest trade that's ever been done. <laughs> so, Jim, um, some of these meme stocks, if you will, small to mid cap, relatively thin floats, um, big short positions, easy to squeeze. Were you surprised to see the Reddit traders go into something like a commodity like silver? Yeah, I was surprised by that. Um, that doesn't seem to be kind of their modus operandi. And there is some debate on Reddit whether or not they're actually doing that uh, as well, too. Hmm. But even if it is silver or it isn't silver, you know, one of my favorite movies is A Hunt for Red October when the torpedo yep. missed the boat. It's still oh, swimming so around in the ocean. That's the Reddit traders looking for another target. So there'll be another chapter to this story. I don't know if it'll be next week or in three months, but this crowd is still out there. And lastly, I would say before the last two weeks, we've been seeing this coming. <clears throat> when Buffett sold his airlines, it was yep. no less than Dave Portnoy who led the charge that said Buffett is old and he's past his prime. Let's all go buy the airlines. They doubled in a month. Portnoy made a ton of money off that trade back then. And the airlines are even higher. They bought the work from home stocks that weren't in the indexes. They bought Tesla. It went up 600% and then got into the S&P 500. They've even been playing the cryptocurrencies. So they've been largely winning at this. Now, I'm not saying they're going to win forever. But what they've been doing is they've been looking at Wall Street's practices, which has a little bit of collusion. This is the kind of the way we all do this. And they've been gaming their system over and over again and taking advantage of it. Wall Street's going to have to change the way they do money. We're never going to see another big short interest in a stock like this again as we move forward because the fear is there now that somebody will stick it to us if we ever do it. Jim, are you concerned on the effect that this will have on short sellers and short sellers making their research available for everybody to view? I mean, in a sense, the short sellers were the little guy for a long time. They were the people that were ostracized by some in the market and they were the people that were, you know, putting themselves out there. Not saying that they were all, you know, heroes or, or Robin Hoods themselves. Let's, you know, let's make that very, very clear. But some of them did have excellent research and they were willing to share it with the world. And it can't have been all bad. No, I agree. Short selling is a critical function in a market. <clears throat> the guys like Jim Chanos, Mark Cahoutis, they have been very, very good at identifying literally fraudulent companies and explaining why they've been fraudulent uh, through research reports and profiting off of that. That is a very valuable service. But then there were these smash and grab type of short sellers that kind of got in the way. And like I said, the other institutions didn't put a stop to it until retail did. And now all short sellers have been tarnished. And I think that at the end of the day, that's not a good thing. It is still a valuable function that was a little overdone that's finally getting pulled back from the froth. But if, if the Jim Chanos' Marcudis' of the world have to go into hiding now or witness protection programs because of this, I don't think in the long run this benefits all of us. Jim, do you expect any regulatory oversight to grow out of this from Washington or the SEC? Um, we've heard some rumblings. I hope there is, but I think they're looking in the wrong place. I think they need to start with their short-selling rules. One of the reasons the SEC was invented in 1933 was abuse of short-selling in the 1929 crash, and they still, after 90 years, can't seem to get it right. I hope that they start looking there 
at that. And I think maybe they should start looking at the institutional community, too. Is there a little bit of coordination or collusion going on there uh, as well? That's in some cases like the famous, you know, idea spinners that the hedge funds hold. That's not really legal for them to do that. But we've done whole Showtime shows called Billions about this because it's such an accepted practice right now on Wall Street. I hope they look there as opposed to how do we we restrict and restrain these message boards. They weren't the problem. They identified the problem. Right. Hey, Jim, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting uh, your perspective on markets. Jim Bianco, president of Bianco Research and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. You can read all of Jim's work and all of the Bloomberg Opinion columnists at Bloomberg.com slash opinion or O-P-I-N, go on the terminal. Lizette Chapman joins us now. She is a venture capital reporter here at Bloomberg. And the reason we want to talk to Lizette is because we have been waiting for Robinhood to go public, potentially in May of this year or so. Lizette, have the events of the last few weeks changed Robinhood's plans at all? Absolutely, it's thrown a real wrench in um, kind of how they approach the public markets. If anything, it's made it much more pressing because they realize that they do need these um, extra capital requirements. So, you know, while before they were looking at an IPO for sh- or IPO or some type of way to go public, you know, early uh, to late spring, now they're they're not even really talking about the timing as much as they are that yes, we need to go public. It's not a matter necessarily of when. But as why? And so as they resolve this recent hubbub, um, you know, they'll be, they'll be looking at um, exactly how to go public. Yeah, Liz, is there talk or what, what is the level of talk about a SPAC? A SPAC to me might be a, a way to consider it could be could get them into the public market sooner, perhaps with less scrutiny. Um, what are they thinking about a SPAC? That's a great point, and a lot of companies have definitely availed themselves of that. Like last year was all-time record high. It was more last year than it was, I think, in the past 20 years combined. So it's definitely top of talks. But right now, to be honest, this is a you know this is a, a you know small but fast-growing company. Um, it is. They say that they they are profitable. Um, you know that's what we've been told according to sources familiar. Um, SPAC is one of the options. Um, so is a direct listing, which is what Palantir and Spotify, you may remember, they, they've done that previously. So those are two other options that they're also talking and thinking about. But, but to be honest, you know, they're so, they've been so focused on just dealing with this crisis right now. I mean, they raised, you know, they were able to raise, they had to raise $1 billion in a span of 12 hours. And that, it, that number increased to $3.4 billion over the course of 72 hours just to, you know, create that comfort and make sure that they could continue trading regularly again. That has been their primary focus up until now. Now yeah. who knows? Yeah, for sure. They definitely want to, you know, keep working beautifully so that people don't lose trust or faith in Robinhood. Lizette, we were just speaking with somebody who mentioned the GameStop probably should have tried to buy Twitch at some point. We know, of course, that Amazon bought Twitch for less than a billion dollars, but we did get Uber making another acquisition today for $1.1 billion, and that's the alcohol startup Drizzly. Talk to us about this pricing. I mean, essentially, this is literally an alcohol delivery service. Is is it worth $1.1 billion? Well, I'm sure that the investors who last um, backed it in 2017 and valued it at 73 million, uh, according to PitchBook. Wow. I'm sure they are popping champagne <laughs> today and 
ordering uh, plenty of things by drizzly or other means because that is one heck of a return. So seventy three um, million, not even three years, yeah. barely three years ago. Yeah, exactly. So I, you know, and that's kind of the way the venture capital game is played, right? You only need one really great company to knock it out of the park to make up for all the other losses. Um, you know, what Uber gets with this is. Um, you know, they, they get to expand their alcohol delivery. They were doing it before through Postmates, which you remember they acquired uh, last year for $2.6 And they were able to do it through Corner Shop, which was their um, acquisition in, in Mexico. But this is a really big push, doubling down, maybe even tripling down in delivery. Booze sales are through the roof during the mm. pandemic. Um, you know, Drizzly itself said that their sales were up 400% above historical levels um, back in May. And, um, you know, I, I think many people can say that, that, you know, alcohol consumption is up uh, historically. So, you know, this, this, this is um, a chance for Uber to really dig down into delivery because, as we've talked about before, its ride-hailing service has just been decimated by the pandemic. So people are shut in, people are ordering food, you know, and, and now booze. And um, um, they can also do uh, pharmaceuticals and, or pharmacy, uh, you know, uh, items and uh, also packages so this is part of uber's overall shift to just say look guys we're not going to do flying cars we're not going to do um you know flying flying taxis or electric scooters we're just going to do delivery and rides and darn it we're going to turn a profit this year so that's their focus hey lizette what's the mood out there in silicon valley as it relates to doing deals raising capital how much does the pandemic slow things down Oh, man, I don't know. I've been, you know, kind of cloistered away. Silicon Valley is more of, a, of an idea, I think, yep. than an actual location. So I've been working from home since, since March. But I can tell you from talking to early stage investors, um, some of them say that, that their deal flow is higher than it's ever been. And the numbers back that up, you know, even though they're not doing all these deals in, in you know, over coffees and over drinks and networking, all that stuff is gone. Yet last year was the highest amount of venture capital um, on, on record. And we also saw, um, you know, the most of the mega funding deals, these massive 100 million plus deals that pump that total, um, you know, to an all time high. So to your answer, you know, to, to your question, what's the mood? Um, it's busy. I think people are just grinding it through, still getting deals done. They're doing it on Zoom. They're doing it in calls. Um, but, um, you know, we're still very much affected by the pandemic here as we are in other parts of the nation. Mm. Hey, Lizette, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it, uh, getting your thoughts there on some interesting news coming out of the Valley there uh, with Uber and uh, with Robinhood as well. Liz- Lizette Chapman, venture capital reporter for Bloomberg News in our app based out in San Francisco. Well, one of the industries that was certainly disrupted by the pandemic uh, was retail. The acceleration of the migration from bricks and mortar to e-commerce just really uh, proceeded during this pandemic and continues to do so. Let's get a latest on kind of where we are in the retail environment here. We do that with Ty Lopez. He's executive chairman and CEO of Retail E-Commerce Ventures based in Miami, Florida. Ty, thanks so much for joining us. Give us a sense of kind of where we are in the retail landscape now, you know, bricks and mortar versus e-commerce. How are the retailers adapting? Yeah, I mean, it's still a slow burn, a slow transition, hard to teach old dogs new tricks, as they say. So I don't see them changing fast enough to allay the, you know, coming tidal wave that they're starting to feel. So 
Yeah, that's the short answer, in my opinion. So, Ty, what brands are you looking at as potential targets? Well, you know, usually the bankruptcies and so on, the first quarter, they slowly ramp up. People tried to make it through and watch how the holidays, you know, November, December, Black Friday did. So I expect it to ramp up a little bit in the second quarter. It's usually snow, slow now. Um, Francesca's was one that was for sale. We did not go after that one. It, it's starting to heat up a little bit. People are realizing, hey, we can buy these distressed brands. Um, the last thing we bought was Stein Martin Radio Shack in November. End of November. So we'll see what's coming up. Everybody's kind of, like I said, they're saying, can we make the switch? Can we do it fast enough? And I think when the audited financials come out from the fourth quarter of last year is when you'll start seeing bigger decisions being made about bankruptcy or selling. So, Ty, is your strategy to kind of identify high-quality brands, brands that really have good value in the marketplace, but for whatever reason did not manage that transition from re, uh, physical to e-commerce and then get that brand, buy that brand, acquire that brand, and try to do it yourself? Yes, exactly. What we're looking for is brands that are not distressed, but brick and mortar that was distressed. So if we think the brand itself is distressed, we're less interested. We've passed on various brands in the last six months, sometimes, you know, just out of being too busy, but sometimes we felt like, you know, that brand doesn't have much power. But when you look at something like Steinmark, for example, or Radio Shack, people still stop shopping their dress bar and Pier 1. It's just the economics of the stores is what was distressed. And since we don't really take stores on, that, that segmentation of distress doesn't bother us at all. What about GameStop? What kind of reputation does that brand have these days? <laughs> wow, that's a great question. Uh, I would say, you know, if you look at the origin of GameStop, it's this Chewy co-founder coming on the board and kind of bringing life that he can revive the brand. I read, I forget the name, I read yesterday an activist shareholder or consultant who told them two years ago, you should have bought Twitch. You know, that would have been the play because that transitions you not only, it's not e-commerce, but it puts you in that world that you should be in. So I think GameStop, they have to do more. They have to, there has to be some fundamental changes. Um, I can't speak to it because I haven't researched much, but I thought that was an interesting quote. If they had, you know, made that Twitch acquisition several years ago, maybe they wouldn't be so distressed right mm. now. So I think it's it's one on the brink. It can be turned around maybe, but it's teetering, you know, so we'll see. Yeah. Ty, what's the status of Brooks Brothers? That was a big brand that at the beginning of this pandemic, uh, I believe, filed for bankers, but certainly challenged. Yes, a company called ABG Authentic Brands Group out of New York, if I'm not mistaken, made that made that acquisition. They do a little bit different than us. Um, they're a really you know, well-run business, makes a lot of money, and backed by Blackstones and, uh, or BlackRock, sorry. And they buy things that they, they focus more on licensing revenue. So they felt, for us, Brookstone, uh, I'm sorry, Brooks Brothers, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't understand how we could add as much value, but they buy it for the global licensing rights. And so I think that happened about 
four or five months ago. They they made the acquisition. I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, publicly it was in the three hundreds. Wow, interesting. Uh, talk to us about fundraising. Is it an easy time for fundraising? It feels like there's so much cash out there. I mean, so many SPACs and so much, you know, so many signals of froth really across this market. Are you seeing that, Ty? Are people coming to you to to, to hand you money? <laughs> uh, you know, I wouldn't say coming to us to instantly hand us money, but... Um, there is an element I'm reading, rereading Robert Schiller's book, Irrational Exuberance. Mm. It's a good one for everybody to reread. The Nobel Prize winner wrote it a while ago. But um, it, we raise money uniquely. We're not a fund. We're a holding company. We mostly raise from a network. We've kind of built this kind of group club of high net worth accredited investors. So most of what we do is with this group of hundreds of accredited investors who directly have relationships with us. But we are, yes, I mean, the SPAC world is going to be fascinating because all these SPACs form, they have to eventually, you know, find a target or give the money back. So I think it is an interesting time. It's relatively easy to raise, but, you know, one thing that you start to push up against is the paradox of choice. Investors go, ooh, there's so much. We have cash and there's so much to do. And there's so much to talk about. Ty, we'll have to to do it again soon to talk more about all of this. Ty Lopez of Retail E-Commerce Ventures. Thank you. Let's switch gears now to uh, Global Oil, ExxonMobil. It pledged to safeguard its mammoth dividend after posting its first annual loss in at least 40 years. A show of defiance by an oil driller besieged by activist investors, lawmakers, and climate change campaigners. Let's get the latest on that. We could do that with Fernando Valle, oil and gas analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Fernando, talk to us about ExxonMobil here. A brutal, brutal year for them, but they're keeping the dividend. That's right, Paul. They're, they're maintaining their $15 billion dividend, but at the sacrifice of uh, restoring their, their peer leading returns. Exxon has been the leader uh, in returns on capital for the, the sector for several years. But since 2018, it lost its crown first to Total and now to Chevron. And it is maintaining its dividend, but flashing growth in the projects that were supposed to bring it back towards the head of the line. Um, you see, see the target for the Permian, for example, one of its crown jewels going from 1.2 million barrels by 2025 to 700,000 uh, barrels a day. Um, so the growth is really slowing down. And some of its other key pillars from uh, as, as soon as March of last year, Papua New Guinea and Mozambique also falling by the wayside as it prefers to, to funnel money towards the dividend as opposed to shoring up its, uh, its falling production and returns on capital. What made them make that decision? Was it that there was too much risk in hanging on for some of these plays to, to pay off? Um, I think it's primarily uh, a concern that cutting its dividend will drive away some of its shareholder base. It is a, a, a retail-focused uh, shareholder base that's really fo- uh, uh, important that for, for whom the dividend is very important. So there is a concern that if they do eventually cut the dividend, uh, there will be a, a movement away from the stock, and then uh, that would consequently impact its cost of capital. Uh, my view is that by continuing to pay such a large dividend and not addressing its uh, falling return on capital, the sustainability of that dividend in the long term uh, is coming into under question. 
Fernando, talk to us about uh, Exxon's uh, results for 2020, the first annual loss in 40 years. What's the story? Well, I'm, the story is, again, uh, just fallen margins that were coming along before this as they continue to overinvest. But obviously, the pandemic taking its toll on the on, on returns both in the upstream and on the refining and chemical segment. Chemicals has been the strongest, but even that, uh, we're closer to the 10-year lows uh, on margins uh, than we are to, to, to the highs that we saw in 2017 and 2018. And, and again, that's driven a massive gap in their uh, balance sheet and uh, a significant cash outflow. Exxon also took a $19.5 billion impairment on uh, assets in uh, the U.S. on the natural gas side and also Western Canada and Argentina, plays that they had under development that are now outside of their scope. Just generally, Fernando, the price of oil today is pretty high, up almost 3% and above $55 a barrel for WTI. Is that just a factor of the weather, natural gas prices going up and so on, or is there more at play here? Well, there's been uh, cuts in production, uh, widespread cuts in production. The question is, at this price, how much of it is restored? And we see, for example, as I mentioned in Canada, Canada is now back up above pre-pandemic levels as Alberta removed quotas. Uh, You see U.S. shale producers also increasing the amount of completion crews on the field. So we'll see higher production there. And then there's a question on how long Saudi Arabia and other members of OPEC Plus will stick to their quotas and production quotes uh, uh, cuts if uh, prices remain at this level. Uh, There is always a prisoner's dilemma that you don't want to be the guy that cuts too much and drives prices higher. So eventually we expect uh, some of that production to come back online. We've also had Libya uh, reopening their ports. So we're going to see some production there uh, pick back up in the next couple of weeks. All right, Fernando, thank you for that. Much appreciate the input there, Fernando Valle, joining us there. And uh, Paul, it is quite stunning to see oil back above $55 a barrel. It's been in the 40s for as long as yeah. I remember now. Yeah, and you know we always talk about we talk about a commodity, talk about supply and demand, and it just feels like uh, this commodity is, is driven by the demand side of the equation a little bit more in this market. People expecting uh, you know good news on the COVID uh, virus and reopening the economy, and this is you know certainly at the top of a reopening trade for many investors. Yeah, for sure. Once again, thanks to Fernando Valle, oil and gas analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.